come on <coughs> to chapter 5 now. This is called the Satipatthana Refrain. Having examined the definition of the Satipatthana Sutta at some length, I shall now look at part of the discourse which could be called the modus operandi of Satipatthana. This part, which I refer to as the refrain, occurs after each of the meditation exercises described in the discourse and presents four key aspects of Satipatthana. So refrain means like it's a, so in a song, like a chorus, so after each uh, section of the, uh, the sutta, then this uh, same passage is repeated with just the, the, the changes uh, of words. And uh, the, the four sections are firstly internal-external, secondly arising and passing away, thirdly bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and fourthly independent and without clinging. So those are the four aspects of the, the refrain that he's talking about. The task of this refrain is to direct attention to those aspects that are essential for proper practice of each exercise. Thus an understanding of the implications of the refrain forms a necessary background to the meditation techniques described in the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'll begin to examine in chapter 6. In the case of the first Satipatthana, so in reference to the body, Kayanupasana, the refrain reads, In this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body, quote-unquote, is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And the Pali for those, those four, um, uh, internal, external, is ajata bahida. Arising and passing away is samudaya and vaya. Bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness is jnana mataya and patisati mataya and independent and without clinging is in Pali anisito chaviharati natcha kinchi loke upadiyati The refrain indicates that the scope of Satipatthana practice includes internal and external phenomena and that it is in particular their nature to arise and pass away uh, that should be given attention. By including both internal and external phenomena, the refrain broadens the contemplative perspective. By, by mentioning contemplation of their impermanent nature, the refrain moreover directs awareness to their temporal axis of experience, that is, to the passage of time. Thus with these instructions, the refrain expands the scope of each Satipatthana exercise along its spatial and temporal axes. So he's using a, a kind of graphic image there. So um, internal and external, he goes into a long commentary on exactly what that means. Um, uh, generally it, it uh, is understood to mean, say, the body, you know, this body, your own body, or other people's bodies, or other um, aspects of, of rupa, of form. Um, so uh, in spatial, you know, here and there, both uh, uh, not just you know, this particular uh, body, but uh, the bodies of others as well, uh, inside and outside. So spatial and then temporal are that arising and passing away. So aspects of the body in terms of arising, like an in-breath, or a, you know, a, a growing fingernail, uh, or, a, or a, the um, growing hair on your, on your head. Um, as arising or passing away, you're uh, cutting your fingernails off, shaving your head, hair falling out, <laughs> out breath as a um, 
will be uh, aspects of uh, the arising and passing away um, uh, dimension of experience. So when he says spatial and temporal, it can sound a little bit um, technical, but it's but in terms of, of space and time. And the discourses explicitly point out these two aspects are required for a proper undertaking of satipatthana. The refrain also describes the proper attitude to be adopted during contemplation. Observation should be undertaken merely for the purpose of establishing awareness and understanding and should remain free of clinging. So that's in reference to bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, jnana mataya, patisati mataya, and also is um, uh, in a way encouraging a quality of, of simplicity and straightforwardness, as it says, uh, uh, mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So it's it's not create it's encouraging not creating a, a like a, an involved commentary or um, a particularly analytical thinking about it, but just this is the body. Here is the body. This is a feeling, and or this is a, a mind state. So it's a, a um, that quality of of encouraging a, a direct. A perception, as Lumpur Sumedha would um, uh, use that word, per, uh, like a, a direct knowing, uh, an uh, appreciation of that particular aspect of experience, and uh, and then the continuity of that. So a direct uh, apperception, a direct receiving or, or knowing of an experience, and a, and a sustaining of that. So that's the bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And then independent without clinging is uh, independence in terms of, um, say, a, uh, um, uh, a quality of, uh, I say, inner clarity. Uh, independent, say, not um, being uh, reliant uh, on uh, external influences or, or things that support that, but, say, from your from the internal energy, interest, engagement. Um, so that's coming from within one's own heart to, uh, uh, to be uh, interested, to uh, apply energy, to, to engage on the, that, um, that task. But that engagement being without, without grasping, without like, I've got to be mindful, I've got to, I should, uh, I, I want to get this from it, and so on. So there's a... Uh, uh, quality of independence and, and say, uh, self-reliance or strength, but that being established without the attitude of, of grasping or identification or, or forming the I, me, and my uh, the I'm being mindful. I want to get. Uh, I uh, I am being aware. The all the eyes and me's and minds that that can accumulate around any kind of uh, activity or practice. With the refrain, the practice of Satipatthana turns towards the general characteristics of the contemplated phenomena. At this stage of practice, awareness of the specific content of experience gives way to an understanding of the general nature and character of the Satipatthana under contemplation. So, uh, the refrain is talking about how to handle, or in a way, appreciating the the process of experience, uh, rather than, uh, than than focusing on the the detail of the content. So, as he says, at this stage of the practice, awareness of the specific content of experience gives way to an understanding of the general nature and character of the satipatthana under contemplation. That whether it's a sound or a thought or a feeling, it's arising and passing away, uh, or it's, a, uh, it's something that can be labelled happening externally or internally. So it's looking at the process of experience rather than the, the content. The shift of awareness from the individual content of a particular experience to its general features is of central importance for the development of insight. Here the task of sati is to penetrate beyond the surface appearance of the object under observation and to lay bare the characteristics it shares with all conditioned phenomena. This move of sati towards the more general characteristics of experience 
brings about insight into the impermanent, unsatisfactory and selfless nature of reality. Such a more panoramic kind of awareness emerges at an advanced stage of satipatthana, once the meditator is able to maintain awareness effortlessly. At this stage, when sati has become well established, whatever occurs at any sense door automatically becomes part of the contemplation. Oh, this is a, a sort of uh, a familiar uh, aspect of, uh, uh, say, insight meditation, and uh, any of us who've been on on vipassana retreats or who've taught retreats and uh, or given instructions about vipassana meditation or or heard instructions about vipassana. This is uh, the in a way the standard approach is say letting go of the content of the experience rather than uh, dwelling on the fact that this is the sala it's six fifteen in the evening and it's a dhamma reading and it's a Friday um, and it's me talking and uh, and you listening so uh, rather uh, th- we'd say that's the content of the experience sound uh, vision body feeling uh, mood. Um, uh, rather letting go of the content to look at the process of experience that the sound of the voice is changing doesn't matter whether you understand or don't understand uh, there's the, the sound is changing the feelings in the body okay uh, a couple of minutes ago you were noticing your left leg now you're noticing your right shoulder or that you're, you're feeling the, the the subtle flavor of your your tongue inside your your mouth um, so that rather than, than looking at, oh, that's a, that, oh, I didn't notice that flavor before he just mentioned tongue, but now I am noticing it. Rather than what that flavor or that taste might be, just notice, oh, it wasn't there and now it's there, it's changing. So looking at the process of experience uh, rather than the, the content. And so that's, the, in a way, the, the engine of Vipassana practice is that letting go of the content of experience to look at its changing nature and also... Uh, how uh, all phenomena, all experiences are, are, are dukkha, are unsatisfactory insofar as you know, no uh, experience can be permanently pleasing that uh, no matter how pleasant or delightful uh, something might be um, even though in, in its presence uh, something that's very, um, uh, say, uh, gratifying uh, has a very so powerful sense pleasure to say yes this is great this is the perfect apple or whatever my that uh, said, but what could possibly be unsatisfactory about this uh, well the, the unsatisfactoriness is that moment of yes can't sustain itself uh, either you finish the apple or <laughs> or that that's such a perfect one that the 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 next apple is oh, it's not quite as good as that other the apple I had on Friday that was that was the perfect apple so sometimes uh, uh, when we hear these teachings uh, you know, to the description of all all things are unsatisfactory it sounds like the, the Buddha was a real um, sourpuss as they say I had a really sort of negative or, or critical attitude um, towards uh, towards life and the world of things. But it's rather, uh, in a way, it's a, it's a very clear analysis of how the sense world operates. And, and uh, in neuroscience nowadays, you, know, you can even measure the, <laughs> the amount of, of pleasure that's experienced uh, uh, and uh, map the activity of the brain, what causes that pleasant feeling. Um, the dopamine landing on the particular section of the brain where the pleasure uh, experience is generated that uh, say, yeah, well, there's so much dopamine released and it lands there and it gives this amount of pleasure. But then when the system is habituated to, say, two units of dopamine uh, landing and it gives so much pleasure, if that same two units of dopamine is being released uh, every minute, then the whole system adjusts so that what was uh, an amount of dopamine that then that gave you that yes experience um, if that keeps happening, then the system adjusts, so that becomes completely normal, unremarkable. And so then you need to <laughs> up the, the, the level of stimulation or to, to change it to get like four units per minute or eight units per minute, 16 units per minute. This is how um, uh, we get, uh, say, uh, say the, the, um, how the experience of dukkha is felt because the the system is always 
uh, adjusting. So it's a, it's not a um, um, a negative view on life. In a way, it's looking at how the the sensory system works. And when we talk, when we use the terminology of the sensory system, that's also including the the mind sense. So it's whether it's a a thought or a, a state of consciousness, like a blissful absorption, whether it's a sweet memory, uh, in exactly the same way that that sweet memory can't stay sweet, it can't stay pleasing, it it, uh, it mutates, and uh, that uh, quality of of gratification or, or pleasure, it, it it's it's uh, inherently impossible for it to be sustained. So when it's uh, uh, pointed out that all uh, mind states are unsatisfactory, uh, say all sankharas are dukkha, um, then it's simply saying that uh, that quality of, of, of um, pleasure or gratification or, or a sense of uh, identity that comes with that, it can't sustain itself, so it, it has to be disappointing. Uh, and then anatta, as the... Um, uh, say so the, the investigation of the feeling of I and me and mine. This is uh, related to that uh, uh, habit of claiming this is my thought or my feeling or my body or my experience, my life, my story. Um, and that uh, the investigation encouraged by the, that uh, reflection on anatta is it's not... Uh, to create a belief that I don't exist, or I, uh, that um, uh, I am, I'm not real. But the uh, looking at is a way of looking at that, the way that the I am gets formed, and seeing how that I, me, and mine feeling is another uh, mental formation that arises and passes away, and that that uh, when we say my body, my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, that that. Uh, uh, that word my is what we would call a, a convenient fiction it's just a a, a way of speaking about uh, experience but when that it, when the 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 thing that is the owner that is the doer that is the uh, the, the substance of that i is looked for then then it, it can't be found that uh, that is a um, uh, an appearance of as an appearance of, of a separate uh, independent a permanent existence, but the the, the reflection on anatta is a, a way of of helping the the um, the eye making and mind making habit to be seen, to be known, and, and to be understood, and to therefore to be to be let go of. So this this area that is being spoken about here and the refrain is is in a sense what is supporting that quality of letting go of the content of experience and knowing that the process of experience uh, it itself and uh, he finishes the paragraph the, the section by saying it is noteworthy that two of the most popular contemporary vipassana schools of the theravada tradition that's mahasi sayadaw and uh, ubakin uh, goenkaji's style of practice both recognize the importance of developing such bare awareness of whatever arises at any sense door as an advanced stage of insight meditation. To judge from writings of Mahasi Sayadaw and Ubakin, their particular meditation techniques are apparently mainly expedient means for beginners who are not yet able to practice such bare awareness at all sense doors. And then he quotes a couple of passages uh, from both uh, Mahasi Sayadaw and Ubakin that uh, illustrate that. So this, this is firstly from Mahasi Sayadaw. The actual method of practice in Vipassana meditation is to observe the successive occurrences of seeing, hearing, and so on at the six sense doors. However, it will not be possible for a beginner to follow these on all successive incidents as they occur, because his mindfulness, concentration and knowledge are still very weak. A simpler and easier form of the exercise for a beginner is this. With every breath there occurs in the abdomen a rising, falling movement. A beginner should start with the exercise of noting this movement. 
And then uh, we, use, uh, we used to instruct the yogi whose powers of concentration have strengthened to extend this method of meditation to noting all that happens at his six sense doors. And then Ubakin. Uh, in fact, one can develop the understanding of anicca through any of the six organs of sense. In practice, however, we have found that the feeling by contact of touch is more tangible, <laughs> which is what touch means, uh, is more tangible than other types of feeling. And therefore, a beginner in vipassana meditation can come to the understanding of anicca more easily through bodily feelings. This is the main reason we've chosen bodily feelings as a medium for the quick understanding of anicca. It is open to anyone to try other means, but my suggestion is that one should have oneself well established in the understanding of anicca through bodily feelings before an attempt is made through other types of feeling. So that's both Mahasi Sayadaw and Ubakin speaking about their, their thinking behind promoting that um, the Vedana, the, the, bodily, uh, the bodily sensations as the chief focus for, uh, say, developing Satipatthana and the development of, of insight meditation. Any questions, reflections on that? Yes. Uh, well, it's it's uh, it's like in the um, the Anathalakana Sutta, you have the, the 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 Buddha speaking to the five disciples, the Panchavagi uh, bhikkhus, and so it's a because the the three characteristics are it's a method of analysis. It's like analyzing the nature of experience. So it, you have this succession of questions. Uh, and so Anicca is the most tangible, the, the most obvious. So, and so the Buddha starts off saying, Rupa, the body, material form, is it changing or is it not changing? It's changing. Yeah, it's Anicca. Yeah, the, all material form is in a constant state of change. Some slower, some faster, but material form, and not just the body, but in, any kind of material form, is in a, a constant state of change. So rupa is changing, okay. So uh, <clears throat> if, then he says, so something that is changing um, is it uh, uh, is that going to give rise to uh, affliction or not uh, or, or not? And uh, the answer is yes, it'll give rise to affliction. And <clears throat> then the, then he says, so that which is changing and and gives rise to affliction. Is it worthy of that to say, you know, this is uh, this is me, this is what I am, this is myself? Yeah, no venerable sir, no hetang bante. So this is when we are re- reciting the Anathalakana Sutta. If you look across the page to the translation, that's what, what it's saying. And that's uh, the the logic is okay. We can we it's it's easy enough to see the body, you know, material form changes, feelings change, uh, perceptions change, mental formations change, you know, consciousness changes. Um, okay, you can see that. Then, then gives rise to affliction. It's dukkha, as I was explaining. Either it's unpleasant, in, if it's a painful feeling, it's already unpleasant. Um, or if it's a, 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 a unpleasant perception or mental formation, it's already painful. But then, it, it, uh, even if it's pleasant, it's uh, it's uh, it's unsatisfactory in so far as. It can't be sustained. It, it can't. Uh, it can't sustain its presence. And the, the and the, his question about um, about the the about uh, anatta or the way he asks that. So, uh, something which is transient and which is unsatisfactory. Is it appropriate to say that this is this is etang uh, mama? This is mine. Eso hamasmi. This I am. Eso me atta. This is my true self. Or this is my. This is the atta or atman in Sanskrit. And the understanding would be that that the uh, in the Buddha's time, just as as uh, nowadays in the Vedic philosophy, the Atman is supposed to be a permanent, 
blissful. It's satchitananda. It's real. It's permanent and blissful. Um, and so uh, sat is you know it's true. Chit. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, it's conscious uh, and uh, ananda. It's blissful. So that the the the, the the first two lead you into that recognition of well, if if it's unsatisfactory and it's and it's changing, it can't be, uh, it couldn't be a real self because that's because it's um, it's not permanent, it's not stable, it's not blissful, and so forth. So that then um, he, uh, the the uh, the contemplation is sort of the the easy entry point is through anicca. That's the most tangible, and then through um, uh, through that reflection. Also, the, you know, these things are not uh, a belief system. It's like, okay, can I think of can I think of something that's impermanent that is totally satisfactory? You know, can I can I can I can I come up with something? You know, what what can I come up with, or how can I how can I see that? And so that then. It's a it's a, a kind of an encouragement to explore, and to and then to uh, take up uh, say that um, that investigation of atta. Okay, now uh, this is this is mine. This is uh, this is something that I am. This is my true self. You know, can I can that be said of it? Um, so it's a way of of exploring. Um, the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and so on. But the uh, and so it's, it's not like a belief system, but rather the uh, uh, the quality of change is is kind of an, an inarguable access point. You know, thoughts change, feelings change, the material form changes. It's, it's, it's in a, they're all in a constant state of change. You, okay, given that, then. Um, what follows from that? So it's like that encouragement to explore. We're starting from something that is, say, very um, yeah, obvious or clear or, or sort of matter of fact. James, you had a question. I was just wondering, could someone not be sort of okay with impermanence? They might not. It might not be totally satisfactory, but they might be quite content with the fact that things are changing all the time. Is that? Is the dukkha just meant to mean to not sort of totally satisfied? Or is it meant to be quite suffering of some sort? So somebody may be quite happy with the fact that everything's changing. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, well, it's it, it's also that the um, it's not just that things are changing, but they're sort of changing in in ways that you if they're changing in ways that you like then there's a there's a degree of satisfaction but then they start to change in ways that you don't like could someone accept that and know that that's going to change and not be if they're wise yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's wisdom because it's the uh, the the identification or the the, um, the the clinging to any kind of form any kind of uh, of um, mental object or physical object that that's and that wanting to to sustain it or fearing that it's if it's painful the, the fear that it's not going to change or if it's um, uh, if it's something that you like the the fear that it will change that it, you you will lose it it, it will go away uh, that the, the more that the mind knows well everything is uncertain and changing all the time anyway so uh, that that is a a, that's a quality of wisdom, and so that if that if that is a real appreciation of that, then the mind does as soon as anything is experienced, then the mind is holding it within that that framework and say, well, of course, this is sweet, but it's it's only going to be sweet for for a brief moment. Or this is painful; it's only going to be painful for for a little time. So, don't panic. So it's not inherently unsatisfactory. It's just the general tendency to be unsatisfied. The impermanence itself isn't actually. Inherently dukkha, because if somebody perfectly accepts it, then they're not suffering from it. Right. right. The um, the the expression anicca dukkha anatta is a, in a way it's just sort of describing the experience of the unawakened mind. That uh, and that when it when things are seen, it's like oh there is a thing, 
the you know the unawake mind says, oh yeah, th- this is a book. This this has always been a book. It's my and it's my book. Well, it's not my book. <laughs> I think uh, somebody else's book. But um, the uh, you know the. the uh, so it creates the, the idea of a solid, permanent thing, and then uh, as that changes, or, or the, the book gets lost, or uh, gets uh, gets damaged, um, whatever it might be, then I've lost my book, or, or uh, the, you know the, the the book's pages are falling out, uh, etc. So that, that the mind that knows this is, this uh, is not a permanent book. This you know the paper came from various trees, and the ink. There's various sources, and it came together. And at the moment, it's a, it's a book on Satipatthana, but you know, its day will come when the 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 the, uh, the pages disintegrate, the you know, the book breaks up, and it'll become um, a you know firelighter, to you know, that, and it'll uh, it'll 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 transform. So that the 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 mind that creates, so this is a thing, then says that that thing is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. If the mind recognizes, well, there really isn't any thing. <laughs> That sees that that we're talking about a book is just a convenient fiction, or saying you know it's a chair. Yeah, well you put the wood together and you and you put it into this form. You call it a chair, but it's more accurate to say well there's chairing at the moment, but it, it it's in a process of of change. It came together, it'll fall apart, um, and so then the the anicca dukkha anatta is in a way counteracting that ignorant view. If there's a view from wisdom, you'll see. Well, there's no thing to be anicca, dukkha, or anatta in the first place. You can just say, you know, there are just the um, there's the, the the continuously changing patterns of of experience uh, and that, uh, that you know, follow the, the the laws of dhamma that you know that are changing and transforming according to the laws of nature. That's all. So that the mind is not creating an I who's the experiencer or the doer, or not creating the idea of a permanent thing, or, or creating the illusion that a thing could be dependable or satisfying uh, in in any way, shape, or form. So that it's it, you know the Buddha's in that teaching, he's starting from where we are in a way, he's starting from from ignorance. That's why we mistaken views. Yeah, if there's no mistaken view, there's no dukkha. So internal and external contemplation. The two expressions used in the first part of the refrain are internal, achatta, and its complementary opposite, external, bahida. The, the significance of these two terms is not further explained in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Abhidhamma and the commentaries associate internal with the personal and external with corresponding phenomena in other human beings. So knowing the, the, the body internally um, is, say, like this body and externally would be other, uh, other people's bodies or animals' bodies or, or um, the rupa externally. Modern meditation teachers have proposed several alternative interpretations. In order to explore the possible implications of internal and external satipatthana comprehensively, I will at first consider the abhidhamic and commentarial interpretation. I'll then survey some alternative interpretations. According to the abhidhamma and the commentarial interpretation, internal and external satipatthana encompasses phenomena arising in oneself and in others. In this way, proper practice of satipatthana will also include awareness of the subjective experience of others. Although this may be quite feasible in the case of observing another person's body, to directly experience another's feelings or state of mind seems at first sight to require psychic powers. This would, of course, significantly limit the possibility of carrying out external satipatthana. So... Um, without reading any further I, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that's entirely true because uh, you can see uh, f- uh, people's expressions if, uh, whether they're afraid or they're excited or they're angry or they're, they're, um, uh, they're irritated um, you know, through the body language through facial expression through what they're saying um, and, and so forth so that just to uh, contemplate the, the, 
say the mind state of another, then just to, I would say that they just to, to know oh that person's afraid or that dog is is angry uh, or is um, is being aggressive. Like, okay, that's knowing an external uh, an external mind state. There it is. It's it's, it's visible. So I, I would say it's. Um, um, Saying that it would require psychic powers is is, not just, is uh, probably going a little bit far. But anyway, he goes on to say. Yet in the Satipatthana Sanyutta, the Buddha introduced these three modes of attention: internal, external, and both. He uh, introduced these separately as a quote threefold way of developing Satipatthana. This passage certifies that each of the three constitutes a relevant aspect of Satipatthana practice. The same can be inferred from the fact that the Vibhanga, a comparatively early part of the Pali Abhidhamma, shifts the distinction between internal and external from the refrain to the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta, thereby incorporating internal and external contemplations in what constitutes right mindfulness. Both this Abhidhamic modification and the above-quoted discourse point to the importance of applying sati both internally and externally. In fact, the Vibhanga makes a special point of stating that an external application of sati, just as much as an internal application, can lead to realization. Similarly, a discourse in the Bojanga Sangyutta about the seven factors of enlightenment points out that both internal and external sati can act as an awakening factor. In order to do justice to this evident importance, a practicable solution is possibly to develop awareness of another's feelings and mental condition by carefully observing their outer manifestations. Just as I was saying, feelings and states of mind do affect the outer appearance of a person by influencing their facial expression, tone of voice and physical posture. This suggestion finds support in several discourses that list four means of knowing another person's state of mind based on what one sees, based on what one hears, by considering and further reflecting on what one has heard, and lastly, with the help of mind reading. <laughs> Apart from the mind reading, these means do not require psychic powers, only awareness and some degree of common sense. Understood in this way, an external application of awareness in relation to the various practices detailed in the Satipatthana Sutta becomes a practical, uh, practicable possibility. Um, uh, speaking about uh, uh, Ajahn Chah and um, psychic powers and such like, people used to uh, uh, frequently ask him you know, how he or he always seemed to know what was the the suitable thing to say to people or how he was able to to be a, a teacher for such a wide variety of different characters, the different. Uh, monks and nuns who lived in the monastery and uh, different lay people who gathered around and who and who saw him as a teacher and uh, and so often uh, Ajahn Chah seemed to have exactly the right thing to say to individual people or to give them the right uh, appropriate kind of uh, work to do or um, uh, related to them in ways that gave them exactly the amount of kind of challenge that they, that they could use uh, or was able to um, pick the right thing to say at the right time. So people would, uh, uh, as I understand it, I, I only saw this once or twice myself, but uh, it was a long time ago now. <laughs> but uh, uh, apparently people would, would, would often ask him, yeah, Lumpur, you must be psychic because you, you know, you're able to, to know uh, so well what to say and, and how to help people and you've got so many disciples and you seem to know exactly what's going on in, in everybody's mind. And he said, no, he said, that's not the case at all. He said, you can, if you're observant, you can know everything you need to know about someone just by the way they walk across the the yard. Said, <clears throat> and this is something I talk about quite often in terms of of Lumpur as a teacher. He'd say, yeah, you just if you just watch. Say, okay, who's the person you know, when 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 you have a work project? Who's the one who shows up before everybody else? Who's the one um, who shows up after everybody else? Who's the one who shows up first and then, and then finishes first? <laughs> yeah. Who's the one who's 
sitting out front and saying, what can I do? Tell me what to do, Lumpur. And then as soon as you tell them, then they, they manage to find a way of avoiding doing it. Or others that, that uh, um, they uh, quietly uh, you know, watch what the others are doing, they, they, are, uh, they are observing how the job is done, they quietly get on with it without um, wanting you to acknowledge them, and, you know, in that kind of a way. So you, you can just see uh, uh, where people are at, just the, the way that people walk, the way people um, stand up and um, pick up at their bag or put down their bag, or the way they uh, say, ask questions. Yeah. Who are the ones that always ask questions? Who are the ones who never ask questions? <laughs> yeah. And do they know why they're asking questions? Do they know why they're not asking questions? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, he would say, it's just if you're observant, you, you can learn everything you need to know about someone. He said, it's not magic, it's not psychic powers, it's just it's watching what, pe- what people do. And uh, the, um, the, one of his uh, early Western disciples of Arapanyo, Paul Brighto, got uh, you know, Westerners are very are much more forthright than than, than Thai people. That they, whereas in, in Thailand, you, you, it's very non-confrontational, or uh, you, you don't sort of uh, state your feelings of in a in a bald or a direct way. You, you often sort of find ways of going around things. Uh, but Ajahn Chah used to find it quite interesting that Westerners were very direct and. Uh, <clears throat> and would just say, uh, say say what they felt, and so one time Warapanyo, um uh, asked Ajahn Chah, said, "You know, are you setting these things up? Are, are you kind of plotting with the other monks to to kind of make things difficult for me? You know, do you do you have like discussions about what to how to get Warapanyo, you know, uh, uh, next time?" And he was he, he thought that uh, Ajahn Chah was sort of making up particular situations to. To, to test him out and to see whether he would get angry or get upset or get excited or frustrated. And uh, Ajahn Chah said, no, I, I don't. Uh, I mean, he thought it was funny. It was funny that Varapanya would just assume that he was having little kind of secret meetings with the other Ajahns about how to frustrate Varapanya again. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no, I don't, I don't plan it with anyone. He said, uh, you know, just these things come to my mind. And yeah, he, he wouldn't even have really talked about it, uh, I imagine, in, in such a direct way. He said, no, these things just come to mind. When when I see you're in a hurry, then I think, oh, um, let's find a way of slowing Warapanyo down. Or when I, I see that you're dragging yourself along, okay, how, how can we speed Warapanyo up? <laughs> you know, it's just that it, these things, I'm not plotting with anyone, it's just that uh, situations arise. And, and uh, they um, <clears throat> just... When there's a, a uh, um, yeah, the a need for you know, a monk comes from uh, from Sun Gloria and said, oh, I, I need a junior monk to come and spend the reins with me, you know, I, I see you, yeah, yeah, l- uh, looking at the floor and <laughs> looking at your sandals and and uh, you know, as soon as you hear the the, the words, you know, I need a junior monk to go to Sun Gloria, then uh, then. <coughs> The, you, you look really uh, um, uh, restless and uncomfortable, you're hunting for your shoes. Oh, Warapanyo! <laughs> so then uh, it immediately draws my attention to you. So I think, oh, he obviously doesn't really want that. That'll be an interesting test. So then I say, oh, Warapanyo, do you want to go to Suangloi? Yeah? So that it's, um, it's a very uh, uh, situational kind of teaching. You can call it, and uh, and it was it was true. Ajahn Chah was uh, was you know, very very observant, and so this is a, a, a very good example of that um, bahida, the kind of external satipatthana. He was mindful of what other people were doing. He would be observant of how people spoke, how people were friendly, how people were selfish, how people were generous, how people were uh, or. Um, uh, anxious or aggressive or fearful, or, you know, that just by reading the body language, and so uh, he he insisted he, he wasn't able to read people's minds, but uh, people would often think, how did he how did he know? Because <laughs> it's written all over you. That's how I knew. You know.
Thus, external satipatthana could be undertaken by directing awareness towards another person's posture, facial expression, and tone of voice as indicators of their feelings or state of mind. Undertaking external awareness of another in this way would to some extent resemble the way a psychoanalyst observes a patient, closely examining behaviour and related symptoms in order to assess their state of mind. Thus an external application of awareness would be a, a practice particularly suitable in daily life, since most of the phenomena to be observed will probably not occur while one is seated in formal meditation. Such external contemplation of the behaviour and mental reactions of others can then lead to an increasingly deeper appreciation of the character traits of the person in question. Helpful information for such appreciation can be found in the commentaries, which offer descriptions of different human character types and their corresponding behaviour patterns. Uh, there's a, a book of the Abhidharma called the Pugala Panyati, the, uh, the Discrimination of Human Types, that uh, in the particular enumerates many of those characteristics. According to these descriptions, characteristic mental dispositions of anger or greed can be inferred by, by observing, for example, a particular monk's eating habits and the way of wearing his robes. Difference in character even show up Differences in character even show up in the different ways a simple task such as sweeping is performed. And uh, again, Lumpacha uh, is a, um, a f frequently appears in Lumpur Dhamma talks when he uh, he saw that uh, the way that uh, the the young Bhikkhu Sumedho was was sweeping in a particularly uh, aggressive and uncomfortable and um, an ir was irritated way and. Uh, and so uh, uh, he just came up to, to Ajahn Sumedho and said, Sumedho, is sweeping leaves suffering? And then walked off. And at that moment, uh, uh, the young Ajahn Sumedho's mind was filled with how sweeping leaves was indeed suffering. <laughs> this is really stupid. You know, the leaves are falling off all the time. Why do we have to bother sweeping them up? be much more sensible if they had the trees away from the paths so that the leaves wouldn't fall on the paths and the paths could stay clear all the time. You know, even as you're sweeping, the leaves are falling. It's not like the West where you have a sensible autumn. You know, the leaves just fall at one time of the year and then they stop. You know, all this kind of reasonable complaints and justifiable negativity. And Nampur uh, Chai just sort of saw, oh, Sumedha, he's really having a bad time. Just came up and said, is sweeping leaves suffering, and walked off. Though <laughs> so uh, also in the, the uh, uh, in these descriptions of human types, there's they're, they're kind of uh, they're quite. Um, uh, you can see that they have the same character types in the time of the Buddha as that exist nowadays. Um, uh, the. Uh, uh, and there's there's one uh, um, that comes to mind is that the the kind of person the kind of person that that uh, that uh, digs a hole and then climbs into it uh, and then um, yeah and then yeah, complains that no one's paying no one no one's paying any attention to them. <laughs> See, people, some things don't change, right? <laughs> So, yeah, the, and so that uh, particular eating habits, the ways of wearing robes, uh, which ch which chair do you choose to sit in? Do you choose to sit on a chair or on, a, on the floor? And, um, there are all these kind of um, different distinctions. That, uh, if you think everyone's now starting to judge you, like, oh, why do I, why do I choose this mat? You know. <laughs> I always like to sit on the left, or, or I've got to sit on the right. Oh. Well, I mean, what does it mean that I'm choosing to sit here? And, uh, uh, personally, I don't spend my days judging other people, making little assessments. Someone here at Isaro, what's he doing today? How's he? Sister Kamika, what's she doing? Oh, she's, what's going on in her mind? <laughs> I, don't, I don't make any kind of record as a. Uh, I try to be like Ajahn Chah, just sort of uh, operating on a circumstantial basis.
according to need. According to the instructions in the refrain, internal contemplation precedes its external counterpart. This indicates that the first step of internal contemplation serves as a basis for understanding similar phenomena in others during the second step, external contemplation. Indeed, to be aware of one's own feelings and reactions enables one to understand the feelings and reactions of others more easily. For a balanced development of awareness, the shift from the internal to the external is of considerable importance. Awareness applied only internally can lead to self-centeredness. One can become excessively concerned with what happens with and, with, uh, with and within oneself while at the same time remaining unaware of how one's actions and behavior affects others. Practicing both internal and external satipatthana can prevent such lopsidedness and achieve a skillful balance between introversion and extroversion. So, uh, and uh, Ajahn Chah's uh, uh, say, uh, encouragement on this score was said, spend 90% of the time looking at yourself and 10% of the time looking at others. <laughs> if you need a measure, that, uh, that's what he suggested. The third step of this aspect in the refrain instructs the meditator to observe both internally and externally. The commentaries explain that since one cannot contemplate an object both internally and externally simultaneously, the instruction implies that one should alternate between these two modes. This commentarial presentation does not really add anything new to the previous two stages of practice, since to contemplate either internally or externally already entails alternating between these two modes. The Vibhanga offers a more convincing perspective, since its presentation of contemplating both internally and externally points to an understanding of the contemplated object as such, without considering it as part of one's own subjective experience or that of others. Practiced in this way, Satipatthana, contemplation shifts, Satipatthana contemplation shifts towards an increasingly objective and detached stance, from which the observed phenomena are experienced as such, independent of whether they occur in oneself or in others. So rather than say, um, saying, oh, that person is angry, or that person is afraid, or I'm feeling afraid, just to um, internally and externally would be, oh, this is the, the nature of fear, this is what uh, fear feels like, or this is what um, pain uh, is like. So that's what it's suggesting that the Vibhanga's take is that, in a way, abstracting, uh, sort of taking that that uh, particular uh, object and, and sort of abstracting it from either oneself or another, but to sort of looking at it as a, a quality um, uh, independent of an individual being. The Abhidhamic and commentarial interpretation of internal and external as referring to oneself and others tallies with several other passages in the early discourses. In the Samagama Sutta, for example, the same two terms are used when countering various unwholesome qualities and unskillful forms of behavior, whether these occur in oneself, ajata, or in others, bahida. And in the Jana, Janavasabha Sutta, in a context directly related to Satipatthana, external explicitly refers to the bodies, feelings, etc. of others, and this passage carries considerable weight in relation to the present discussion, since it is the only discourse to provide additional information on the nature of external satipatthana. So that's the Janavasabha Sutta, and that is see, um, in the Diga Nikaya. Any questions, comments? Who's going to be the one to speak? <laughs> who are the ones who always ask questions? Just teasing. <laughs> Those who usually ask questions are suddenly feeling anxious. Oh, Andreas, not you again. Yes, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, because uh, Bhante was asking earlier, about the Anicca, Dukkha, and Nata. The emphasis seems to be placed generally on contemplating impermanence and from there going to the other characteristics. I'm wondering, because personally, for example, I, I find more interest in looking at investigating 
As it's, it's said in the earlier earlier passage, um, you know, you, you sort of start where your interest uh, 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 begins. Really, uh, it doesn't really matter which order uh, the uh, the the reflection is is sort of uh, directed. It's just that's the um, the the way that the Buddha sort of led the five disciples in in the contemplation. Also, when he's talking to Megya uh, in the Megya Sutta. Uh, which is in the Udana, uh, he's giving advice to this um, this monk who had gone off to meditate by himself for the day um, against the Buddha's advice. He went off to to uh, to practice on his own and then got into a terrible tangle of, um, of uh, you know, unskillful and chaotic thinking, thoughts and feelings. And then the <coughs> the, the Buddha um, points that points out that uh, that succession of um, that uh, when one uh, when one contemplates impermanence, then that leads to uh, the um, insight into not self. He kind of skip, I think in that instance he skips over dukkha, but he he's to say when when um, uh, when the uh, the the mind truly sees the nature of impermanence, then it, it uh, sees through the. Um, the the uh, conceit of identity of asmimana, and when the conceit of identity is is dropped, then that is nibbana here and now. So it it uh, um, that seeing that you know, everything's impermanent, this feeling of I is also impermanent. It's also un, it's transient and empty. So it's a uh, it's often the case that that the uh, anicca is the entry point. But you, you know, you start where you are. What's what's sort of interesting or is appealing, and uh, and so that uh, uh, that reflection or, or contemplation of anatta, if that's more meaningful or, or um, helpful than that, or, or more effective, then that's a good place to start. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting that you, you say that also because I I had a similar kind of approach. You're not listening to. Dhamma talks from Lumpur Sumedho and, and reading Dhamma books is always uh, not self that was most interesting and, and I found most insightful. And I always really liked the, the, you know, these sort of ultimate level teachings about emptiness and, in, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, not self and uh, the, the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned and so on, you know, which Lumpur Sumedho would often be talking about. And... Uh, when I, I had this chance to go and spend three months in the forest in, in Chithurst, in my tenth rains, you know, I uh, <clears throat> I had this uh, this idea. Well, maybe instead of always trying to get to the most sort of the most ultimate and the most sort of refined or most uh, um, subtle, why don't I just go for the most simple? <laughs> and so I just decided to uh, um, because I I. I in a sense, sort of greedy for insight. I want the best, the highest, the most, the most ultimatist. You know. <laughs> uh, well, why don't I just go in the opposite direction and just spend this three months just contemplating a Nietzsche, like, and just okay, just whatever it is, just just to reflect on a Nietzsche. So part of my when I made that, uh, I had that idea. Part of me went, oh, this is going to be really boring, but <clears throat> but I thought, well, no, just. Uh, that's that's probably a good reason to try it out. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I'll just do that. And to my surprise, just doing that for three months, that just uh, day in day out, just using that anicca anicca uh, as a, a, a reflection, it had a surprising. I was really surprised at the profound effect that that had. I was like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, it's not just kind of plain ordinary, you know. Well, of course, everyone can see a Nietzsche. It's like, oh my goodness, oh look at that. And so it was, I, I was very pleasantly surprised at how it was uh, extraordinarily insightful. Just, just to stay with that uh, as a as a reflection, as a a, a a theme of contemplation. Even though it's so obvious, well, any kid cannot figure that out. I mean, like. A, Five-year-old can see everything's impermanent. You know. I want the good stuff. You know, the, 
real powerful, deep, profound. And so, uh, so I was, uh, I was quite uh, um, uh, impressed and uh, very uh, gratified with that. Pleasantly surprised. Well, speaking of impermanence, seven o'clock has come round, so time for the next thing. <laughs>